Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Matthew chapter 4. It's so good to see all of you. Um, glad our building is warm. We were talking about that this morning. Thank God for, for heat, right? Matthew chapter 4. Been in a series talking about who is Jesus. And uh, let's read God's word to see what we're going to what we're going to learn this morning. Starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. God, this is your word that you have inspired. Now would you illuminate it for us today that we would receive your message to us we would know who you are and be able to find our identity in you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the temptation of Jesus is the header in my scripture. Uh, in my copy here in the ESV, the temptation of Jesus. I wonder if temptation is the best word, though. Uh, it's a fun little theological problem to throw out. Could Jesus, who was perfect, really be tempted to do evil? Was it possible for him? Maybe I would like to just sidestep that whole conversation and say, is temptation even the best word? What about the word test? How do we know what's true about ourselves? How do we know what's true about ourselves? I, I think in life, we actually have a tool that we use in all areas of life to determine what's true about someone, and it's a test. In school, we take tests. Maybe some of you would point to teachers and say those weren't tests, those were temptations to try to make me stumble and fail. <clears throat> but it's not just in school that we have tests. The military has tests, right? They don't wanna send someone on the battlefield who's not equipped and ready mentally and physically to face all that they're gonna face. So rightfully so, they test folks before they send them to the front lines. If you wanna be a lawyer, you need to pass a test, right? Informal tests even happen uh, all the time as you work a job, right? Because if, if you're working a job and years and years and decades pass and you've worked your way up in a company, you've passed thousands of informal tests proving that you could be uh, faithful and competent at a certain level of leadership and have earned your way to move up. Those were informal tests. And what, what is it that a test do, does for us? A test kind of opposite of temptation, like a temptation we think of, it's trying to get me to stumble and fail. But a test, what does it do? It just reveals what you know. 
I remember taking pre-tests in school, and it was like at the beginning of the semester, and the teacher would say, this is just to see what you already know, to see kind of where you are and what things we need to cover in the months ahead. And she wasn't trying to get me to fail taking a pre-test, but she wanted to know what, what's really in your head. Like, let's let this come out in this moment of taking this test. A test is a great way to know what's true about ourselves. But the problem with our world, our culture, is that we think if anything hard or bad happens to us, it must mean that we are bad. My life is bad. Maybe I had my identity all wrong. Like, I can create my own identity, and then I go through something hard, and I think, I must have created the wrong one. I need to shift this. But Jesus, who had the most solid and unchanging identity of any human who ever lived, faced really hard things in his life. And he shows us, I think in this text this morning, that nothing hard that he faced ever jeopardized his identity. Rather, the hard things were actually a testing ground for his true identity to come out. The tests of Jesus show us how to be grounded as we face our own tests in life. So this morning, we're going to just kind of walk through pretty much in order this passage. The first thing I'd like for us to look at is the spirit-led test. It would help us to remove chapter and verse numbers, remove the headers in our Bible, and maybe read in order so we can get the sense of what's happening here. In our Bibles, it says Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. So let's start there. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by that same Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What? (laughs) That's not the Spirit most of us signed up for. We signed up for a Spirit who would not lead us into that. We signed up for a spirit that would protect us, insulate us, comfort us. But when you put all those verses together and you don't have a week separating reading one section from another and you see the context of the word spirit coming up there is coming to rest on Jesus and in his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, so I'm gonna use this spirit to lead you out into a time of testing in the wilderness. Remember what Jesus is doing, and we've seen this in these early chapters of Matthew, as Matthew has used this fulfillment language over and over. He's fulfilling the story of God's people. He's fulfilling the story, really, of all humanity, of the Old Testament. He is reliving the story of Scripture, of God's people, of all humanity, and he's reliving it in complete perfection, in a way that no one else could live that story. So as we look at some of the language here, even in verse 1, Let's let our minds make creative connections to the Old Testament for a second. He is 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Where in scripture have you heard of 40 units of time and wilderness? We go back to the wilderness wanderings in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But it wasn't just 40 days, it was 40 years. Read Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two with me. It says, This is God speaking through Moses to the people. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you 
to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So in some way, we see Jesus reliving the story of God's people as they walked for 40 years in the wilderness, being tested by God. And here Jesus is living 40 days in the wilderness, hungry, as they were, complaining. God providing miraculously manna, and them complaining about that, and being literally buried in birds. So they're hungry, they're wandering in the wilderness. Jesus is hungry, he's wandering in the wilderness. They're being tested, Jesus is being tested, and we read in Deuteronomy 8 that those wilderness wanderings were a test to see what was in their heart. It was a test to see if they would really trust God. Because that's what a test is. It doesn't mean a temptation trying to get them to fail because in that sense, in Deuteronomy 8, who's doing the testing? It's not the evil one. It was God. God wanted to see what was in their heart. But as we keep looking at this passage and we see Satan, the devil, asking Jesus these uh, propositions, putting these things to him, tempting him, it brings us even further back to Genesis chapter 3. We don't know the form in Matthew 4 that uh, that the devil takes. Uh, I, I love Tim Mackey, Bible project guy, Bible nerd guy. He's awesome. And I, I love the way he described the devil as he taught through this passage that I listened to this week because he said, he said, I don't want to describe him in any human form at all because he's, he's evil. He's almost not even creaturely. It's just evil. And that evil in scripture takes different forms. And in Genesis 3, we see him take the form of a serpent and we see the serpent pose questions to Eve, trying to tempt her to lure her away from trusting dependence on God with his initial question, did God really say? In effect, what happened in Genesis 3 was the evil one, the devil, Satan, saying, do you think this God could be holding something back from you? This God who's supposedly given you all these wonderful things, it seems like he's holding back. He doesn't seem all that good. He knows if you eat this, your eyes are gonna be opened. He knows that all of a sudden you'll be a threat to his authority if you take the fruit of this tree. And he dangles in front of Eve the unknown up to that point the unknown ability of conceiving of life independent of God and makes her think, what if God's not as good and as loving as he says he is? Well, then here in the temptation of Jesus, we see Jesus reliving that same test. That same exact test. And I, I think we kind of see two tests happening. One, Jesus is tested, but also Satan wants Jesus to test God in some of these Tim Keller says that the world's full of kind of two kinds of people when it comes to Satan and, and evil. There's some people who think Satan is the only problem in our world, and there's other people that think uh, Satan is no problem at all in our world. And I think we gotta try to find some middle ground, and part of what this passage is teaching us is that spiritual warfare is real. And it will come in ways that appeal to things that we love and even things that we're able to do And as we begin to walk through some of these tests that Satan poses to Jesus, I'd like to start with the first one, and here's how I would summarize this first test. Test one, if God really loves me, my life shouldn't be this bad. If God really loves me, my life shouldn't be this bad. 
we just have a pronouncement from heaven. Tim Keller put it like this. You hear a voice from heaven and a couple voice later, a couple verses later you hear a voice from hell saying, from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the voice from hell says, if you are God's son, immediately throwing into doubt and confusion Jesus' identity as God's son. Effectively saying, would God's son really be left out in the desert like this? I mean, this is a pretty pitiful scenario for someone who is supposedly the eternal son of God uh, come in human flesh. And you're out here for 40 days and 40 nights starving yourself. I mean, you could, you could kind of sidestep that whole deal, couldn't you? Don't you have the power to fix this situation? If you are the son of God, and you supposedly do have these eternal, cosmic, supernatural, miraculous powers, why don't you just command these stones to become loaves of bread? This way that you're looking like Jesus is no way for the Son of God to be living. This was a temptation, I think, on multiple fronts. It it was a temptation, first of all, to interpret God through his circumstances. Jesus, look at your circumstances, and you think you're loved by God? Is this how God treats those he loves? By sending them out into a desert to starve themselves for 40 days? When you have the power to fix it in the snap of a finger? It wasn't necessarily a temptation to doubt his sonship, but to doubt the implications of it. Shouldn't the eternal son of God have things a little bit better than this? And I think the other way it's a temptation is it was a temptation for Jesus to use miraculous powers that, first of all, it seems like he had right? Like we read the gospels and it's not that Jesus couldn't or shouldn't use powers like that because he does. He multiplies food on different occasions. We know he can create food out of nothing. But it's a temptation for him to use these miraculous powers to provide for himself, which we never have a record of Jesus doing. We only have a record of Christ using his miraculous powers to provide for others. Like, have you ever noticed that in the Gospels? Jesus almost inconveniences himself. But then you see that he clearly has the power where he could have provided all sorts of things for himself. But he only uses his supernatural, divine, miraculous powers to serve others. And even then, only at opportune times, almost to make a point. So how does Jesus respond to this test? His response shows us that he was secure in being God's beloved. He he didn't need to opt for comfort or using his powers to change his circumstances. And he actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. I read verse 2 earlier, and and here's what verse 3 says. And he, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone. That's the bit that he quotes. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Like, that, like that's good. I, I was taught this growing up. Like, Jesus quoted scripture back to Satan. We need to know scripture so that when we face spiritual warfare, we can quote it right back. That's all wonderful, and that principle is great. I would like to know in this context, what are the words Jesus was probably referring to? He's, I mean, context, 
He's in the wilderness, being led there by the Spirit, being told, if you're God's son, sh- shouldn't you just fix this whole sin? Shouldn't you not be hungry? And Jesus says, I don't need bread because I can live by the words of God. What, what words of God had he most recently heard? You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus looks at the test in the face and says, I don't need these stones to become bread. I have the words of God ringing in my ears that I belong to him. Jesus faces this temptation and responds with a solid confidence in who God said he was. So what about us? Jesus is in some ways modeling for us, showing us that our circumstances are not proof that God has abandoned us. He's setting a pattern that 2,000 years of Christianity has followed to expect the suffering that Brandon read about a few minutes ago. I mean, if anyone was beloved by God, we know it was Jesus, right? Yet, Jesus still faced challenging, difficult circumstances all throughout his life. He is the eternal son of God, yet he subjected himself to feel all the limitations of being human. He grew up. He felt sadness. He felt hunger. He felt pain. He felt joy and sorrow and sadness. And Jesus never stopped being God's beloved son because of his circumstances. Which means that your circumstances never put into question God's feelings towards you. Your circumstances never put in jeopardy your standing in God's family. Never. And we know that because Jesus lived it for us. We can know that our circumstances do not ever mean that God has stopped loving us. And we can stand in the strength of Jesus to be assured of this. As we keep reading, we get to the second test. I'll summarize like this. If, if God really loves me, I'm gonna need him to prove it. If God really loves me, I'm gonna need him to prove it. Satan tries to play on the same battlefield as Jesus. He quotes some scripture in Psalm 91. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. So he takes him to the top of the temple, right? And uh, we have some you know, time travel things going on here that's just miraculous that Matthew feels no need to tell us because Matthew didn't know, you know, 2,000 years later we were going to watch movies like Doctor Strange, you know, in the multiverse of madness and like go, wait a minute, how in the world did Jesus go from wilderness to temple to some mountain where he sees the whole world? And it's like, I don't know. Um, so we don't really have the answer to that other than it was probably some sort of, of supernatural vision Jesus is having. So he ends up at this really high point, and he's invited to jump down. Why don't you take a leap? Because, Satan points out, look, it's, it's written in Scripture. He's going to command the angels concerning you. And on their hands, they're going to bear you up, lest you f- strike your foot against a stone. Like, hey, God's going to protect those that he loves, right? So you should be able to jump down, and let's put that Scripture to the test. Why don't you jump down and see if he actually protects you? It would be helpful if you uh, are ever 
you know, in a conversation with Satan, and he quotes scripture, to look at some context. Psalm 91, in verse 9, says this. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, temple language, the most high who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan conveniently stopped there. I wonder why. Because verse 13 says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. A clear allusion to Genesis 3 verse 15, in which the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. And his heel will be bruised, but that is nothing for the mortal wound that his heel will cause as he crushes the head of the serpent. And Satan's invitation in this test is for Jesus to test God's love for him. It's a temptation really to test God. And Jesus responds, again, by quoting Deuteronomy. Like, that's something I didn't have time to continue diving into this week, but for you Bible nerds that want to, Jesus quotes scripture three times, and they're in Deuteronomy 6, and then two in Deuteronomy 8. Like, that's a very, he has a lot of Old Testament to choose from, and he chooses a very narrow window. Like, that's fascinating to me. So he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes a passage that's about not testing God like they did in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were putting God to the test. Like, God, do you still love us? After all he had done to save them out of slavery in Egypt and miraculously provide for them over and over, and they still have the audacity to question God. But Jesus showing us that we don't need to test God in order to trust his love for us. The application for us is how often do you feel something like this? God, if you'll just answer this prayer, like I'll know that you're there. If you'll just get me out of this thing. If you'll only explain to me why this is happening, I'll trust you in this. But if you're not gonna give me a reason, I don't know that I could trust you. That's it's my heart. And Jesus is modeling for us. He, he is being victorious for us in the face of something that he doesn't feel like he needs to test God's love, but instead can enter into a, a real trusting relationship, receiving God's great love for him. And that leads us on to this third and final test which I would sum up as saying, if God really loves me, I shouldn't have to face hard things. If God really loves me, I shouldn't have to face any hard things. This last test, uh, Satan abandons his scripture quoting strategy and just jumps straight to the moral of this whole deal. Look, bow down and worship me and I'm gonna give you authority over all these kingdoms that you see here on earth. This is essentially an opportunity for Jesus to sidestep a journey of rejection and suffering and eventual death on the cross. He's inviting Jesus to take his rightful place as the one who has all authority over everything in heaven and on earth. That is Jesus' rightful place. He is offering him an alternative route to that destiny. This is a test about 
how Jesus will arrive at that destiny of glory and authority over all things. But here's what this test looks like for you and I. If God really loved you, you wouldn't have to go through all the suffering to get to the glory. But if, if God really loved you, you could just step into the glory now. All that suffering and hardship must mean that God doesn't really love you if you have to go through that to get to the glory at the end. I think that's it's such a real temptation for us um, in our culture where we, we do have the resources to insulate ourselves from much suffering. We can, we, can, we can put padding and comfort in our lives to ease any sort of, of suffering, right? It's tempting to hear a message like this, and actually what it does is it, it sets you up to fail when you do go through something really challenging, and you can hear it in people who have the skeletons of a spirituality in their story, and then they'll go through something hard and they almost don't know how to respond to the hardness with just grief and lament. And so they, they have to try to, either they abandon their view of God totally or they, they try to put some positive spin on it. Like, ah, I know God's doing something great. And it's like, maybe not. Maybe this doesn't end with some miraculous story that they make a movie about. Like, m- maybe the recovery doesn't happen. And she stays sick. M- maybe the relationship's not put back together like maybe suffering just happens and it's awful and maybe it's a test for God to pull out the truth about your heart in that and when we feel like we've got to put positive spin on things it handicaps our ability to lament and grieve which we see Jesus do in scripture if God really loves me I shouldn't have to face hard things the story of Jesus tells us something different. Jesus' response to this is short and sweet. Be gone, Satan. Be gone, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Be gone, Satan. Those words are only used one other time in scripture. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're like Elijah reincarnated. Some people say you're, you know, just John the Baptist or prophet. You know, and he goes, okay, what about you? And Peter, quick to speak. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one that our people have been hoping for for thousands of years. You're the Messiah. And he says, you're right. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell aren't going to stand against my church. And then in verse 21 of Matthew 16, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. So when they are fully understanding, like you are the Messiah, Jesus kind of reigns on their parade of thinking, the king's here, and he says, from that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he's like, now that you understand that I am the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, You need to understand where this is all heading. I'm not gonna kick out Rome. I'm not gonna establish a new government here right now. I'm actually gonna go die. 
at the hands of those that you want me to kick out. And Peter, quick to speak, took him aside. I love this. <laughs> you just admitted he's the Messiah. And he takes him aside. Jesus, come here. Uh, and he rebuked him. <laughs> Do you think Jesus ever lets Peter live that down in a joking way? Like, they have, there still has got to be that, like, you remember that time you rebuked me, Peter? <clears throat> He rebuked him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen. No, 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 no. You're the Messiah. You're going to reign. It is time for your authority and your kingdom to come. And Jesus looks at Peter and says the same words that he told Satan in the wilderness. Now, the only way the disciples would have known what Jesus said in the wilderness is if Jesus told them. He's out in the wilderness by himself. In this point of the story, he hasn't even called his disciples to follow him yet. This is the beginning of his ministry. So you wonder, on what occasion would Jesus have thought, it's about time I tell you what happened to me in the wilderness. Maybe this was the time. Maybe, I'm just throwing it out, maybe this was the time where Peter says, you're never gonna suffer like that. And Jesus says, actually, I had someone else offer me that route too. Actually, hey, I've heard this before, Peter. Someone else offered me glory and authority and to arrive at my destiny without suffering. And can I tell you what I told them? Be gone, Satan. Hey, Peter, leader almost of my followers. Hey, Peter, main character in the Bible. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Two times Jesus says those words. Once to Satan and once to his most, one of his most loyal followers. Jesus knew that his story had to include suffering. But the suffering in no way means that there's not gonna be love and glory. In fact, it took suffering on Jesus' part for us to share in his love and glory. Had Jesus not suffered, we would have no hope because the suffering would still be ours to bear. Jesus suffered in his life and in his death so that he could glory in his resurrection, knowing that he had defeated death once and for all, knowing that he had paid in full the price for sin. And so in this passage, Jesus certainly gives us a great example of someone who stands under the test perfectly. But he's more than that for us. He's not just our example. He stood under the test not just to show us how to do it, but he stood under the test for us. He withstood those temptations, those tests that we all face so that we could share in his strength. We could share in his place before God. And we also could be confident enough to face suffering, to face difficulty, and to face tests in our life and still remain confident in our identity as one who is loved by God. So what do we see in the temptations, the tests of Jesus? Your circumstances does not mean God has abandoned you. Because Jesus, the only one who you could ever say earned God's love, (laughs) 
not in a sense that he used to not have it, but he was the perfect one, the sinless one, the pure, righteous one. One who has had a loving relationship with God for all eternity also went through suffering. And it did not ever change his identity. And when Jesus invites you to follow him, he's inviting you to take on an identity that suffering can't touch. So if you choose today or in your life not to follow Jesus, know that you are choosing an identity that suffering can crumble. There are no world-given identities that can withstand suffering. Every other identity you choose for yourself will put a weight on your back that you cannot carry. And you will crumble under that weight. The only way to have an identity solid enough, sturdy enough, steadfast enough to face all the challenges that are coming in your life is not to build the identity yourself. That's too much for you to bear. It's to receive an identity from Jesus who stood up under these tests that we can't stand up under. And he stood up under the test, not just of Satan in the wilderness, but under the cross. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, he was silent as he went on his way to die for you and I. And it's this Jesus that loves us and invites us to receive our identity from him. Let's pray. God, what an awesome story that this is. I'm always amazed at your word, God. It seems to hit at the right time. It seems to have, God, always a relevant word for us where we are in our lives and I pray for those of us in this room right now, God, that are facing suffering, facing challenges, facing hardship, God, facing tests that may be causing us to doubt our relationship with you. Things that we're going through that we maybe have asked some of those questions. God, if you loved me, why am I going through this? Why is life so hard? I pray this morning that in the power and name of Jesus, you would give us confidence to know that our circumstances do not touch or change our relationship with you. In fact, they just might prove it. In Jesus' name we pray.